So looking out, everybody seems very relaxed and comfortable, uh, very settled in after four days, four, four and a half, something like that. Um, it happens on retreat. You, know, you come and it's so new and so much adjusting. And then gradually you kind of make a little bit of a home in the hall and in your room. Things settle down some. A couple nights ago, um, I spoke about relaxation and insight. And when I spoke about relaxation, mostly I was focused on, talked a lot about the attitude and practice, how developing an attitude of being more accepting that a lot of the work that we're doing in practice is kind of going up up against our conditioning, which rejects. Um, So the attitude of accepting and allowing and also trying to practice without that attachment to an agenda or an attachment to results. And that's, I think, a particularly challenging attitude to cultivate. But one can actually develop that attitude in practice. And certainly the mindfulness practice is... um, crucial in developing a wise attitude. So the attitude is accepting, but mindfulness, the quality of attention, of course, is non-judgmental attention. It's open-hearted attention. Uh, It's a kind of form of intelligence or attention that uh, does not have any particular agenda. That's not its nature. Um, It just doesn't have any preconceptions about what it meets. It just meets what it meets. You know, it just meets the actuality of whatever's arising in the here and now. And that's the beauty of it. That's the power of it. Thoughts and thinking have tremendous power, obviously. Uh, We can create and destroy uh, the planet just uh, based on our thinking. So thought is very powerful, but so is mindfulness. And I would say mindfulness is more powerful when tapped into. So we talked about the relaxation of attitude and the open-hearted attention of mindfulness, which is relaxing, deconditioning the mind letting things unwind. You know, the sleepiness that you experienced, maybe still some, uh, first couple days, that often I think it's a reflection of the unwinding that occurs in the body-mind process when we start uh, practicing more mindfulness in a sustained way. At least that's my theory, among many theories, but that's one. Uh, And then there's also the relaxation which we've been cultivating in terms of developing a, a stability of attention and working with that primary object of the body-breath experience. And uh, you might have at least tasted it. Um, It's a uh, stability of attention is is sometimes hard work. I mean, retreats are designed to help nurture that as quickly as possible, but there's no guarantee that one's going to feel that there's some stable attention for long periods of time in, in what I would call a relatively short period of time in a relatively short retreat. takes time to develop that uh, samadhi. Um, and that's one of its limitations, is that it's conditional. You know, certain conditions really support that quality of mind, and silent retreats certainly do. Everyday life, not so supportive. It doesn't, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean you, one can't develop that stability of attention in everyday life, but you have to work at it. You have to keep a practice going and take time for quiet and try to practice as regularly as you can. And that nurtures that um, you know, steadiness, that undistracted mind. So these forms of relaxation are very deep, very profound. And uh, the effect that they have on us, and I can certainly feel it as the retreat unfolds, is 
that it develops this, um, it strengthens this, our capacity to be with ourselves. Uh, and ourselves are very difficult to be with. Uh, living with a body and mind is quite challenging. Uh, the mind is in conflict a lot of the time, struggling with thoughts, moods, emotions, mind states, identifying, claiming, rejecting, clinging. The body, of course, many of you have talked about body pain and Sure, some of the pain, uh, the discomfort that you encounter, we encounter, all of us, um, may come from just sitting as much as we have. um, One of the reasons why we emphasize sitting in chair and experimenting is uh, so that we're not adding to that grief. We're not adding to that uh, physical discomfort. We're doing what we can in a balanced way, not trying to avoid it, but certainly trying to work with it in a wise, compassionate, and skillful way. Um, but there's also some pain in the body and discomfort, kind of, no matter how often you sit. Uh, you, know, you don't have to sit eight hours to, to uncover physical discomfort in the body. Many of us have injuries, some structural things going on, there's blockages in the body, there's illness, um, there's knots in the body, and as we become more mindful and sensitive to the way things are, to the life that we're living, um, then we, as we explore more deeply, we encounter those knots, those tensions. And certainly that's been a significant aspect of my own work and practice, is encountering those knots in the body and the tension um, that we accumulate in our stressful life. So we're developing this capacity to be with ourselves, not just for the sake. You know, we're not, we're not punishing ourselves. Sometimes it may feel like you're really putting yourself through hell uh, sitting like this. Um, but that's not the framework. That's not the intention. It's not self-punishing. In fact, the Buddha experienced that in his own practice, you know, sort of beating himself up, starving himself, treating himself, treating the body very badly, going off into that very ascetic trip, and it didn't work. He discovered that all it did was deplete the body. And the body, we need energy. You know, we need to take care of our bodies and support it, in, uh, and once again, in a balanced way. Um, but what we're doing is giving ourselves an opportunity to get to know, to touch, as Larry mentioned the other night, to become more intimate with the actual experience that we are experiencing, the actuality the reality of our minds and body, and taking a look at it in a fresh way, not running from it, you know, not distracting ourselves, clearly not distracting ourselves. IMS is not a place to come to distract yourself. You know, following the schedule definitely doesn't support a lot of escape. Uh, you know, we can indulge in fantasy. Nobody's watching your mind other than you. Uh, but it has its limits, and it kind of wears you out after a while. And, it, and the fantasies actually begin to lose their interest by, I think, third or fourth day. Um, so uh, we're here to really touch ourselves. Okay? And, we, and so this relaxation creates the conditions. It's supporting this journey, this exploration, self-knowing, as Larry talks about. And what it's what it's doing is it's supporting and strengthening our capacity to investigate our experience, 
to begin to bring greater understanding and wisdom into our life. So tonight I would like to talk about investigation, quality of investigation and insight. So we'll move from relaxation and insight to investigation and insight. As human beings, we have the capacity to investigate many things. You know, I mean, we can uh, use our analytical powers, our problem-solving powers to investigate um, all sorts of endless pursuits. Um, Dharma practice is also an investigation. And what we're investigating is the nature of this body-mind process, you know, the nature of our suffering, uh, liberation, the path. And one very inspiring thing that we very regularly bring up is this um, quality of inquiry, uh, the spirit of inquiry, which is paramount to uh, Buddhist practice. It's not about ideology of buying into belief systems. It's so important to realize that everyone's on their own journey, and we're developing the ability, the discernment to see for ourselves. So the nice thing, and I think this is very suitable for the Western mind, is we don't have to turn to authority for the answers. When we begin to explore our own minds, to understand things as they are, it's up to us to take a look. And it's not to say that we all don't need help along the way. We do. It's a big, it's a big job. It's a deep and profound work. Both Larry, myself, Matthew, all of us uh, who have been around the scene for a long time, uh, have studied with many different teachers and have been helped enormously by our teachers. So it's not to diminish the fact that we, uh, the significance sometimes of guidance and support, and that's true for the community itself. Even though we encourage direct inquiry, the fact is the community of Dharma seekers, you know, not just Vipassana, not just here at IMS, but folks who value awareness, the spiritual life, the inner, the inner life, are um, crucial. I mean, we need them. We need that kind of support. And very few people would be undergoing this process if we didn't have other people to share it with and to help support us. So the Sangha is so crucial. But ultimately, it comes down to us, our own suffering, our own need to understand the nature of that suffering, and our own need to, to taste and experience liberation. In the Thai forest tradition, this quality of investigation or the spirit of inquiry is described as, in the Pali language, as satipanya. Sati means mindfulness. Panya is wisdom. And so investigation is merging those two qualities, those two aspects of mind. Satipanya, merging of mindfulness and wisdom. Mindfulness transmuting confusion into wisdom and discernment. So the investigative process is what we've been engaged in these past five days. The quality of attention that's needed in investigation, this exploration, this journey to 
take a look for ourselves, understand things very directly. That quality of attention is silent. Mindfulness is silent. It's uh, free of preconceptions, as I've said many times. It's open-hearted. The stability of attention that we've cultivated helps support investigation because it allows us to pay attention in a sustained way, in a way that's undistracted. And when we're exploring in deep levels, when we're beginning to question what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we're living, we need to be able to do that in an undistracted way, at least for periods of time. We need to see our whole experience. And quite often we can be aware of suffering. We can be aware of our experience, but it's fragmented. It doesn't lead to insight. It might tell us what is going on, but there's no understanding of its nature, what might be the source of that suffering. We may not see, for instance, the impermanent nature of that experience because we're so caught by it, we're so identified with it. And so that stability of attention that develops both in the open awareness but also in the shamatha practice supports inquiry. We're strengthening our our minds to look. We're asking something, um, something quite challenging but quite rewarding quite energizing from ourselves. Um, you know, we, we love this practice. Uh, you know, we all, I believe that every human being on the planet has some spirit of inquiry within them. But it needs to be strengthened. It needs to be strengthened because, generally speaking, Don't feel put down by this. But generally speaking, because I'm talking about my own mind, including all of us here, uh, the mind is really lazy, Uh, really lazy to its core, practically. Um, It's constantly, you know, clinging to the familiar, you know, loves that familiar, home, you know, whatever it is. It seeks comfort, endlessly seeking comfort, insecurity, wraps itself around some idea of security. And, you know, it really tries desperately to find a refuge in the known, you know, in the known. And of course, inquiry, you know, the spirit of inquiry or investigation, it's, it may sound scary, but it isn't. It's liberating. Um, it's, it's really a journey into the unknown. It's seeing things in a fresh way. It's, it's working with things that we think we know, but we're looking at it with fresh eyes. We're looking at it as though we don't know. And it's possible to do that. Absolutely possible. That's where practice goes. Practice allows us to live our life with that quality of freshness. It doesn't mean that we get lost doesn't mean that we don't have memory. doesn't mean that we can't function and that we don't recognize people and that, all of that kind of stuff. But there's a quality of freshness, even in the, with the folks that we know and that we are familiar with. There can be a quality of freshness in those relationships because every time you meet someone, every time you have a conversation, every time you touch someone, it is a new moment. That person is not the same person. 
We are not the same person. Life is changing from one moment to the next. And that quality of freshness brings a lot of energy into life. Things get kind of dead and discouraging and boring and despairing when we live a life based on habit. We cling to the habit out of security. Sometimes we don't know any better. But what gives life energy and joy is that quality of freshness, that feeling like, well, I don't really know everything. You know, I'm taking a look. I want to learn from my experience. The mind, I think, craves to learn. It wants to understand. So, kind of grounding this talk, and let's take a look at different aspects of our experience, different areas of our life, where, 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 where we've been working in this retreat and where Dharma practice you know, is quite useful. The areas that we encounter and how to investigate it. How is investigation, for instance, different than thinking about things? You know, that's one form of investigation. Could be reflection, which is very useful. Analysis is a very useful way of investigating things. Uh, but it, th- all of those are, are somewhat limited. Um, the kind of investigation that we've been emphasizing and that we emphasize in this tradition is direct seeing into the here and now. It's not about thinking. Thinking is conditioned. Investigation is not. Okay? It's, it's new. So one of the areas that we've been investigating certainly is exploring the nature of the body. You know, the breath practice isn't just to develop stability of attention, but it also helps cultivate the insight of impermanence. Beginning to see this body process as impermanent. No matter what idea we have about the body, no matter what images of good or bad, for or against, the nature of the body is that it's changing. That's something all of us human beings share. That's a universal law, that the body is changing. Now, someday, somebody may come up with something that keeps the body from changing. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I doubt it, but never know. Uh, But right now, our bodies are changing from one moment to the next. And so paying attention to the body, beginning to explore the body on a deeper level, below the surface of image, below the surface of concept and idea, and judgments, seeing the actual energy of the body, the sensations as they're unfolding from one moment to the next. That's seeing things as they are. That's seeing into the nature of the body. There's one practice. I was talking to somebody the other day about this Burmese teacher, Tangpulu Sayadaw. He's no longer alive. Uh, but he came through IMS in the late 70s. And uh, Rina Sarkar is one of his main disciples. She lives in the San Francisco area. She's a teacher, professor, Dharma teacher. And Tangpulo uh, taught this practice, which mostly I think, I don't think would be particularly useful for the Western mind, but it's an interesting practice anyway. Um, and if you have a you know, want to explore it a little bit, you could read about it. 
but it's called the 32 parts of the body. And they're reflections on the body. And often kind of reflections of the kind of gross quality of the body, like the internal organs and the blood and all sorts of gushy stuff that's going on in there. And, and one is using that, those 32 parts as a samadhi practice and as a practice to, as a reflection, as a, uh, to see you know, that aspect of the body. You know, it's not the whole picture of the body by any stretch of the imagination, probably fortunately. Uh, but we probably have a lot of problems with each other if we saw each other that way. Um, and the population would go way down, too, I think. Um, but um, probably die out, actually. Uh, so it, it's just an interesting practice. It's an ancient practice, but not so useful, as I said, in the Western mind, because predominantly because we already have a lot of aversion to our bodies for many of us. And so we don't need to reinforce that. Um, but practice, just the direct seeing itself, can, doesn't necessarily take you in that direction of seeing organs this way or blood vessels or whatever it might be or all that kind of stuff, secretions and all that kind of stuff that they get into. Um, but it, you do see the fact that the body is changing. And of course, the bigger picture, in meditation you can see it moment to moment, of course the bigger picture, which is what investigation points to, it often points to bigger truths. We're focusing, you know, on small things often, you know, like this body. But the bigger picture, of course, um, I just forgot what the bigger picture was. <laughs> what is the bigger picture? There's something in there that's bigger. Impermanence is bigger. What was? No. <laughs> There's something about impermanence in there, I'm sure. <laughs> Sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Aging, sickness, and death. <laughs> I should have read Larry's book. <laughs> no, I did. Um, so, aging, sickness, and death, right? There's the bigger picture. That's something, of course, we all share until they figure out something about that, too. Um, and, and, and we can see. But we, we, in other words, we can know that the body is impermanent, but sometimes it doesn't get in. And in fact, oftentimes, because we don't investigate it fully, and there's so much identification with the body that, that knowing that the body is changing can create a lot of fear. Because we're, we're identifying with that body. We're out of harmony with the actuality of the body because we haven't seen it deep enough. We haven't seen it in a sustained enough time. It hasn't really got in to us. And it's a very difficult thing, actually, to let this in to the point where one becomes much less fearful. You know, where death seems like it's part of nature. The body is part of nature. Take care of it, live a good life, but it ages and it dies. Okay. Accepting that fact, really accepting it, brings tremendous peace. Tremendous peace. We feel included. We feel interconnected. We don't feel separate outside the nature. So often the ego or the, the mind is telling us that we're separate. Of course, we're not. We're part of nature. OK, so that's the body. Investigation of the mind. Thoughts, emotions, moods, 
mental states, reactions, the thinking mind, wandering mind, the the distracted mind. With investigation, the beauty of investigation, the silent, sati, silent, panya, discernment, wisdom, seeing into, discernment, seeing clearly, allows us to take a, a fresh approach to thought, to the mind. It gives us an alternative to just thinking, trying to think our way out. I would, when I look back at my early days of practice, all the things that I faced, all the obstacles, and they were significant. The one major strength that I had was I realized very early on that I was not going to be able to think my way out. And I was convinced of that. I was convinced that my thinking wasn't going to free me of suffering. I was not going to be able to analyze, figure out, strategize, manage, manipulate, theorize. None of that was going to work. I felt like I had tried it. And it wasn't getting anywhere. In fact, it felt more limiting all the time the more I did it. And so I was ready you know, for another approach. And this, this practice came along. And it's a very different approach. It doesn't rely on thinking. It helps thinking a lot, that's for sure. In the long run, it helps a lot uh, around clarity of thought. Um, but it doesn't rely on thought to investigate. It's this silent attention in a sustained way to what our experience is. So how do we investigate thought, mental states, moods? Let's look at a couple of them. One is boredom. Uh, few people acknowledged that they were bored. And my guess is there were many more that acknowledged it. Uh, boredom is a common phenomenon on retreat, particularly uh, for, for newer students, but even others. You know, I can remember some three-month courses I've had where I went through a period where even, I was even bored with lunch, you know, which is usually the, probably the more interesting time of the day. And I was just saying, another lunch, another bell, you know, another lunch. What are they going to have? You know, and I'd eat, and pretty didn't really excite me too much. Um, and then tea came along, and that definitely didn't excite me. Um, and it was tea back then, you know, similar to what we had Monday night, actually. That's what we used to get all the time. Um, so boredom can strike. So how to investigate boredom? You know, how to investigate boredom? That's an interesting question, I think, because we don't think about doing that. As soon as we get bored, especially in this culture, man, we look somewhere else. You know, we look somewhere else. Oftentimes, you know, we relate to it. We have a lot of aversion to boredom. And so if we're going to investigate boredom, if it comes up in practice, it's, we'll take it as a signal that there's something wrong. No, there's nothing wrong. There's just boredom arising. Okay? It's just an expression of the mind. It's arising under certain conditions. It expresses itself in certain ways. And it's fascinating to observe it. Like Larry said, the last thing that many of us would ever think about doing is just looking at our experience. We're too busy seeking experience. We want to be interested all the time. So 
turning our attention to boredom, being with boredom, seeing if we can make room for that particular experience is a fundamentally radical approach for that particular mind state. So what I'm going to suggest sometime is when you find yourself bored, whether it comes up during any time during this retreat or if it comes up in your daily life, which it does, don't do anything. A good example of this is say you're sitting in your room, you know, and you're sitting in your living room chair someplace, and you know, you just finished reading a magazine, and the mind is just kind of bored with what's happening, and immediately, you know, there's a feeling of boredom. Something's going on. We feel bored. Notice that feeling and don't reach for something else. Just feel the experience itself. Try not to move away from it. And then also observe how one is relating to the boredom. See, investigation is that sustained attention. Not only are we observing mental states, we're also observing our relationship to those mental states. And one very common relationship is aversion. We feel bored. We might get frightened by it. You know, sometimes boredom is frightening. You know, we, think, we might think there's something wrong, with either with our experience or the situation that we're in. And so it can actually, boredom can actually generate anxiety. Okay? So looking at that sequence, boredom arises, what does the mind do? What does the body do? Paying attention, learning from our experience, because the fact is, if we can actually be bored and hang out with that, that's actually empowering. It's disempowering when we have a particular mind state and we move away so that we don't experience it. You don't have to indulge in it. You know, we don't have to hold on or cling to a particular mental state. All mental states arise and pass away, but we don't have to move right away from the experience. We can taste it. One everyday life experience um, <clears throat> I had him working with boredom happened about, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks ago. Um, you know, I've been reading all this hype about Avatar, the, the movie Avatar. How many people saw Avatar? Ooh, quite a few, maybe two thirds or more. Um, yeah, sure. You know, how, you know, so there's a big hype and, you know, a couple hundred million people have seen it, I think, in this country or some crazy thing like that. Uh, and, you know, the 3D and all that. So I finally got around to seeing it. Of course, I went to the big screen and all that and bought the glasses. They charge extra uh, for the 3D glasses. And I strapped them on, and I sat, and I started watching. And in the first five or 10 minutes, it was kind of fascinating watching 3D. But you know, 3D is no big deal. If you meditate, you're going to be experiencing 3D, I guarantee it. You know, I put them on, and you know, it's nothing really. You, know? I mean, <laughs> you see space. I mean, big deal. You know, space is space, you know? Okay. Um, so the visuals were kind of interesting, and the colors are nice. And, uh, you know, James Cameron, knows, the director, knows how to make films. And, you know, he's the Titanic guy, and, you know, he, he knows a lot about film. Um, and I heard all this stuff, you know, some folks that were in the Dharma say, oh, the Dharma's great. The Dharma, you know, it's really Dharmic. It's really Dharmic. You know, I kept watching, waiting for the Dharma. And it, not much was coming, I'll tell you. I thought the Dharma was pretty dumbed down in this movie. So I was watching, but, but like by half an hour, I'm getting really kind of bored with the movie. And I'm really surprised 
I expected to really, really like it. Um, I don't know why, but I just did. So I thought I'd like it, and then I found myself talking to myself while I was watching it. Like, you know, you should really like this movie. You know, so many people have said what a great movie this is. You know, you should really like it. You know, this, this is fascinating 3D and great colors, and they have these relationships and, you know, interconnection of nature and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the movie, I won't tell you how it goes, um, but, you know, it, it really goes downhill quite quickly. <laughs> uh, and, and that was just the beginning uh, that I'm describing now. Uh, so, I was pretty bored, and don't be insulted if we have differences in the opinions on movies. Everybody does. Um, but, uh, you know, what was interesting to me was I started watching my mind in relationship to the movie. And that was like 4D. You know, 3D is the movie, 4D is watching my mind in relationship to 3D. Okay? Um, so I watched my mind, and I could see all the stories I was telling myself. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting, but it really wasn't. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a great filmmaker, but it really wasn't that good of a film. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, convincing myself, and I'm beginning to see what's that energy about, you know, and it's because I want to feel connected or something, or, you know, I want to deny my boredom or something, or maybe feeling, being bored makes me feel alone. Who knows, okay? But it's looking at that process. It's, t it's including that in the movie experience, okay? And... So the movie isn't just the movie, it's learning about yourself at the movies. So you don't have to be in meditation center to investigate. You just have to pay attention. But you have to train yourself. You have to cultivate that. And that's what we've spent a lot of time doing in the last few days. And you'll see. You know, Larry's going to talk more about everyday life. You'll see. The mind will be definitely more investigative when you go back. The samadhi, hey. Don't cling to it. But the investigative mind, the mind that's starting to notice more, subtle levels, different reactions that we might have towards things, you know, beginning to question things a little bit more, not buy into the convention, the conventional wisdom, but beginning to check out things for yourself. That's the thing that I believe is carried over and the thing that we practice within our daily life. Another uh, energy of mind, another mind state um, that I want to encourage all of us to investigate, apply the satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom, clear seeing, paying attention, fresh way, is the energy of fear. So maybe boredom isn't uh, you know, such a big thing in your life. But fear, for most of us, is a, um, quite a predominant experience. A lot of it's unconscious, but a lot of it is conscious too. Uh, we live with it every day. You know, we often manage our lives. We make a lot of choices and decisions. You know, our life is shaped often by that energy of fear. And also, um, we have a very complex relationship to that energy. You know? Fear, of course, if we want to begin to investigate it, and take a look at it directly, one of the uh, insights that we can begin to see when we start uh, developing the capacity to uh, open to our fear or our anxiety or our self-doubt or worry. Um, when we begin to 
when the mind gets more silent, it begins to see those energies. And, and certainly one of the insights uh, is that it's a conditioned state of mind. In other words, we learn fear. And we, we learn to be afraid. Uh, it's in our, maybe in our DNA, I don't know, but it's certainly in a lot of our past experiences. It's a conditioned state of mind. And as every conditioned state of mind, it arises under certain conditions. And the process of investigation, as Larry has pointed out, is a process of self-knowing, getting to know yourself in an intimate way. And same with fear, is getting to know what conditions, uh, what conditions bring up fear. You know, today, for instance, a good example of that was when we all looked out the window and it was snowing. And I know it provoked you know, quite a bit of anxiety and fear. People were thinking about what it's going to be like when they leave. And, and so the condition of snowing, if it was sunny, clear, fear would not have arisen. Mine would have been more peaceful. Okay. So it's a conditioned state of mind. That's seeing fear for what it is. Um, again, um, beginning to explore it, satipanya, quiet, silent mindfulness, being very allowing and accepting, giving room for that particular energy when it arises rather than pushing it away or ignoring it or judging it. We can begin to explore its nature, so it's a conditioned experience. It also expresses itself in unpleasant ways, uh, unpleasant in the body quite often. So if we're going to investigate fear, a practice that I learned in Thailand and practice I do to this day is when fear arises, if it's particularly strong, I'll investigate it in the body. Just stay with the physical sensations themselves. You know, don't get caught in the thinking. You know, I'm talking about situations where you're safe, there's no, you're not in danger, but there's social fears arising or uh, anxiety or worry is arising. And so one way of investigating is to observe the physical sensations. And the powerful thing about that practice is one is you can begin, one can begin to experience the energy nature of fear. You can begin to see that it's energy. Uh, and also, we can begin to let go of the identification with that particular energy. And for most of us, it's very difficult not to experience worry, anxiety, self-doubt, or fear, and not claim it as me or mine. Not take it as me. It's my fear. It's me. It's mine. Let me give you a list of fears. Drive this point home. Fear of aging, sickness, and death, we've already mentioned. Fear of the unknown. Okay. Just, just listen and see if any of them are you're remotely familiar with. Fear of the unknown, fear of change, fear of transition, fear of criticism, disapproval, being judged by others, self-consciousness, fear of being vulnerable, fear of being seen, self-doubt, anxiety, worry, fear of losing control, fear of loss, fear of being afraid. I could go on. <laughs> I won't. There, the point is not to depress you. Um, the point is to point out that it's so common to have these fears. Yet in our little world, we take these energies as personal. Me or mine. When the fact is, a lot of us share these same fears. 
but the trick of the mind is to claim things. And that reinforces that illusion you know, of separateness. And of course, that creates more fear. Okay? So with investigation, it's not that we have to convince ourselves of anything about fear. It's unpleasant. It's constricted. It's tight. You don't have to like it. But to investigate it, we need to allow for the actuality of our experience, become more aware of what our actual experience is, try to be more accepting and allowing, meet it with that attitude, and then begin to pay attention, even for just a few moments, when we find that we're in a condition that is provoking that particular energy. We also need, in the investigative process, to understand better what our relationship to fear is. As I mentioned, it's very complex. Our relationship to fear is also conditioned by our past. Okay? So for me, as a young boy growing up, my conditioning, not surprisingly, was that you weren't supposed to be afraid. So if I had a fear, which I did when I was really young, of the dark, for instance, that wasn't something that I allowed for or talked about or you know, felt OK about. No, it was something I might have been ashamed of, for instance, or uh, hid from, or you know, buried my head under the pillow and, you know, until the next day. Okay? So, so the conditioning for a lot of us is that there can be a lot of shame, for instance, in relationship to fear. Uh, we hide it from each other. And we're all walking around oftentimes with a lot of fear, but you know, we, we don't want to reveal any of that. Uh, and it takes a lot of confidence and courage to be authentic and to begin to reveal more of yourself. Obviously, that revealing can really only occur in certain contexts, for sure, uh, when you're talking about these kinds of things. But the fact is, we often hide it from everybody. So looking at that relationship, exploring, actually, say, resting your attention in shame, the feeling of shame or embarrassment, or resting the attention in that feeling of self-consciousness. Just feeling the unpleasantness of that experience rather than telling yourself about it or that you shouldn't be afraid or that you shouldn't be shame, experience shame about fear. No. Okay, if that's, if that's the relationship, if that's what the relationship is, take a look at it, hold it, work with it in a skillful way. If it's overwhelming, develop some calm. Try to balance the mind so that we can investigate it. Sometimes investigation of difficult energies requires a great deal of skill. Sometimes we can't do it on our own. But one thing that we can do in working with difficult energies is to nurture some calm. Use the shamatha practice. Use the metta practice as a way of balancing the mind so that we can investigate and explore these energies, so that we can see their impermanent nature. So the quality of this investigation is silent. And that allows us to go very deep into the mind. It allows us to explore below the level of concept, below the level of thinking, below the level of mental states arising and passing away. We begin to see the bigger picture when the mind gets quiet just from 
observing, listening, receiving, begins to see wider and deeper. And what it begins to see is that it begins to taste and touch and get to know slowly but surely the field in which experiences are arising and passing away. All of life isn't just arising and passing away. We can begin to see something that's not changing, something within us. The Buddha described it as the deathless, the uncreated, the unfabricated, our our true nature. And, And tapping into that level, which is all of us, it's possible, it's there. Once we don't develop a mind that's not caught or not uh, reactive, the mind gets quiet, touches the silence in the mind, touches that place that's not arising and passing away, and out of that comes a great deal of confidence. It's what we call unconditioned. We taste the unconditioned or unconditioned peace. Something that's quite unshakable. That then allows us to hold all these changing experiences with a great deal more confidence and faith and a lot more trust in investigating them. Okay. So let's just sit for a minute. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings see into their true nature. And may all beings be liberated from all forms of suffering. Thank you.